Well, let's be honest. Nobody really likes authority. Nobody really cares to have someone tell them what to do. And right now, all the teenagers are saying, amen, right? To resist authority isn't something that has to be learned. It just comes natural to us. Kids starting at the earliest of ages begin to resist the authority of their parents and adults in general. Students resist and challenge the authority of their teachers. And throughout history, mankind has resisted and challenged the authorities of rulers and governing bodies. And most notable in our day is the resistance of uh, the, the police and the, the law, uh, law enforcement authorities. Some of the resistance is related to the fact that there are abuses of power by those who have the authority. And this serves as an antagonist to those who are subject to it. And we've seen this play out in the human factor when there's this tug of war sometimes going back. And we see that, if we're, we're completely honest, there's, there's this tension. And then there are situations where two different parties can try to battle for power and position. Both parties want to claim that they're the authority. A battle for authority can take place between husbands and wives. Battles can take place between siblings. Battles take place between co-workers, business partners, coaches, teammates. Sometimes these battles can escalate to the point where one side will boil over and they'll either think or they'll say, who do you think you are? Or what gives you the right to say this or to do that? You ever had that experience? Yeah, some of you are like, yesterday as a matter of fact, right? Uh, You've had those experiences and so have I. Well, today in Mark 11, we will witness an escalating battle for authority as Jesus is confronted by the Sanhedrin. And if you're not at Mark 11, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there. And here we find ourselves back in the middle of the Passion Week, and we've spent a number of weeks now outside the Gospel of Mark, so it's going to be refreshing to return. A couple days earlier, Jesus was followed by a massive crowd into Jerusalem, as they anticipated a confrontation. Jesus just cleared out and condemned the worship that was taking place inside the temple. He called out Israel's leaders in Mark 10, 17, stating that they had made his father's house, a house of prayer, into a robber's den. And so the following verse states that the chief priests and scribes were seeking to destroy him. Now we find Jesus back at the temple the next day, and the exchange is about to intensify as the opposition continues to resist and challenge Christ's authority yet again. Let's read the account, starting in verse 27. They, Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, 
I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to be a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Gracious God and Father, we come again humbled, submitted, asking for your grace and your goodness to prevail as we study your scriptures. I pray, Father, that you would guard my lips from saying or teaching anything that isn't accurate, that doesn't reflect the reality of your word. Help us to see insights and principles that we can apply, maybe even ones that aren't mentioned in the message, but use your word to convict us and to challenge our hearts. We do know our bent is to resist authority, even to resist your lordship, to resist the the authority that you rightfully have over each of our lives. And I pray, Father, just as we look at this passage, that you would allow us to gain deep insights that will allow us to continue to grow in Christ-likeness. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, the theme of the passage is authority. And you may have noticed that that's a term that gets used four times throughout the verses that we just read. It is the Greek word exousia, and it's usually translated authority or power. And here in our context, it refers to the authority of rule or the sphere of authority. You could even use the word jurisdiction. Mark's gospel account from the very beginning features Christ's authority, and a brief survey will refresh us. We can look back all the way, and it seems like many moons ago that we studied Mark chapter 1, and it shares that as Jesus began teaching, that the people noticed something very different about him. In Mark 1.22, it says they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, exousia, and not as the scribes. Again, in verse 27 of chapter 1, it says, They were all amazed and debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Verse 28, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. If there was one thing that drew people to come and hear Jesus, and, and to witness the healing miracles that he performed, it was the authority with which he taught and which he healed. We, we see this clearly. Sadly, it's also a fact that it drew immediate criticism from those who opposed him and who thought they were the authority. In the very next chapter in Mark 2, Jesus heals a paralytic man in the presence of the scribes who grumbled at Jesus for telling the man that his sins were forgiven. Jesus responded by saying, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, 
and go home. Nothing irritated the religious leaders more than Christ's claim of authority. And by the time we get to the last verse in Mark chapter 2, Jesus has already claimed that the Son of Man, referencing himself, even is Lord or has authority of the Sabbath, which they cherished, which was their day, which they determined what took place on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, I'm the authority over the Sabbath. And this enraged the scribes and the Pharisees to the point where they even set up a plot at the beginning of Mark chapter 3, and they put that man with the withered hand, you remember, right in the synagogue on the Sabbath to see what Jesus would do. And you know how the story ends. Jesus healed him, and then Mark 3, 6 says, the Pharisees went out and immediately conspiring with the Herodians against them as to how they might destroy him. And throughout the remainder of Mark's gospel account, we see some combination of these leaders coming to challenge Christ and his authority. It's the scribes sometimes, sometimes the Pharisees, right? We see aspects of, the, of combinations of these, of these groups. And it, it usually involved them coming to Jesus, right? Jesus was out ministering. And they would come uh, to, to basically disrupt his ministry or challenge him while he was in the process of preaching the gospel and, and healing people. But now Jesus has come to them. Okay, He's shown up. He's at the mothership now. He's, he's at the temple. And this is their jurisdiction. He's, he's come to them. And they're, they're like, alarmed by this because you know they, they consider this their turf and mark 11 27 through 33 is going to help us draw three conclusions about christ's authority and these are listed for you in your outline first christ's authority confronts religious pride second christ's authority exposes rejection of the truth and third christ's authority humbles those who reject it. Of course, there are principles of application that we'll be able to draw out from these conclusions. And as I prayed, there, there might be something that the, that the Lord uses just uh, during our time rallying around his word that helps us to see our own personal pride, helps us to see how we distort the truth, and in some ways how we, we can be humbled by the ways that we reject Christ's authority Let's start with the first conclusion. Christ's authority confronts religious pride. Starting in verse 27, it says that Jesus and his disciples were walking in the temple. The temple was massive, and um, perhaps you've seen pictures. There are some really good ones that you can just Google search on the, the temple in Jesus' day that allow you to see the layout. I've provided some pictures in the past, but uh, for the sake of just um, talking about where this conversation might be taking place, they had these colonnades. And they were these massive columns that were spaced out um, equally, and then there were roofs over them. And then these, these colonnades protected people, of course, from the wind and the rain, but they were also the place where most of the teaching would take place. There was also a, a royal porch on the south side of the court, and Solomon's porch, which you 
here mentioned, right? And John 10.23 and Acts 5.12, you hear Solomon's porch being mentioned, and that was on the east side. Where exactly Jesus is located at this point, we don't know for certain, but that's not the important thing. It is, it is what he was doing. Mark's newspaper account says that he's walking through the temple, that he was just merely walking. Matthew's account says that he was teaching the people gathered around him. But Dr. Luke gives us the most detail in Luke 20, verse 1, when he shares that Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The gospel continues to be the hallmark of our Lord's ministry. We've seen that from the very beginning in Mark chapter 1, for which he said, this is the purpose that I I came, to preach the gospel. He stood in the temple calling everyone to the righteousness that can only come by true faith in God's promise of salvation. And this biblical call of salvation continues to be heralded in our hearts today with Christ's authority behind it. That no person would trust in themselves for salvation. That no person would trust in their good works or in any external forms of religious righteousness but that every heart would repent of their unbelief and trust completely in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Amen? Amen? We, we, we are turning from anything outside of Christ. You've heard the expression before, Christ plus something equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. And that is so true when it comes to the gospel. As Jesus affirms, Throughout his teaching, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Christ's authority in the biblical gospel confronts human pride in all its forms, especially religious pride. Look at the end of verse 17 and notice who shows up. The chief priests, scribes, and elders. This is the same group that Jesus predicted that he would be handed over to, to be crucified back in Mark 8.31. The chief priests, scribes, and elders were the three groups that comprised the Sanhedrin, which functioned as the highest governing council of Israel. It was Israel's religious supreme court, if you will. And here these leaders represent a delegation from the Sanhedrin. It's not the entire council, but this, this is just, and there's a reason for that. There was actually 71 people Uh, on the Sanhedrin. So it's uh, very doubtful that all 71 showed up to uh, confront Jesus, but they they sent a delegation. These 71 members of the Sanhedrin basically had complete freedom in religious matters, although they were restricted in power when it came to political matters. And they served really as this buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish nation, And this is the only instance in Mark where the Sanhedrin approaches Jesus. Okay, We've talked about, uh, as we've looked in our studies, scribes coming at one point in time. We're going to see the Sadducees approach him um, later on in uh, chapter 12. We see different groups, but now it is the only time that we see the representation or a complete delegation from the Sanhedrin. And both the approach and the question of the Sanhedrin attest to the issue of Christ's authority. 
and that this was a great matter of concern at the pinnacle of the Jewish religious establishment. Verse 28 says, And they began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? If I could summarize their questions and reflect the tone and and which is embedded within, I would use the same question that serves as the title of our message today. Who do you think you are? This is what they're basically saying. Their desire now is to destroy him, and Jesus has continued to be a thorn in their side, and they are aggravated. They are angered. We've seen that since Mark 3, 6, and we see it all the way throughout the Lord's ministry as his authority challenged them. And they asked this question, who do you think you are? Everything that Jesus is doing, from his teaching and preaching to his healing, is confronting their religious pride. In verse 28, we see the leaders refer to these things when they question Christ's authority. And commentators suggest several possibilities as what these things can represent, but without question, they're referring to things that we see right here in our near context that have taken place. This includes Jesus coming into town in the triumphal entry as he was, he was riding on, on the donkey and people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. We know how much that irritated them. And then Jesus condemning the temple worship and practices and calling out the spiritual leaders. And now here he is again the day after and he's showing up and he's preaching the gospel and he's pointing people to who? To himself. Critical. And he, he was always pointing people to faith in him and, and, and helping them to see and understand that he was indeed the Messiah. And all of Christ's ministry reflected divine authority. Throughout Mark's account, the scribes and Pharisees and all the people have witnessed Christ's authority. And they've seen it in a number of different ways. They've seen it over nature. They've seen it over sin. They've seen it over evil as he cast out demons, over sickness, even over death. We've seen it. And we've studied it. Yet they got to witness it firsthand. They got to see it with their own eyes. And they still refuse to acknowledge Christ as Messiah. It's unbelievable. And these men were the accredited teachers and rulers of Israel. They were regarded by the Jews as experts when it came to religious knowledge. Most of them were ordained to the position that they held. And they could actually trace their lineage all the way back to descendants of of Aaron. those Those in the priesthood. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yet, what we see is this spiritual pride that is embedded deep within their hearts. And instead of this being a time where they would actually be instructing the people to turn and, and to listen to Jesus and enforce what he's teaching, they're full of prejudice against the truth and they're bitter enemies of the Messiah. J.C. Ryle shares this extended expository thought that I read in my study that I, I thought was worth sharing. These things are written, he says, to show Christians that they must be aware of depending too much on ordained men. 
They must not look up to ministers as popes or regard them as infallible. The orders of no church confer infallibility, whether they be Episcopal, Presbyterian, or Independent. Bishops, priests, and deacons, at their best, are only flesh and blood and may err both in doctrine and practice as well as the chief priests and elders of the Jews. Their acts and teaching must always be tested by the word of God. They must be followed so far as they follow scripture and no further. There is only one priest and bishop of souls who makes no mistakes. That one is the Lord Jesus Christ. In him alone is no weakness, no failure, no shadow of infirmity. Let us learn to lean more entirely on him. Let us call no man father on earth, referencing Matthew 23, 9. So doing, we shall never be disappointed. End quote. It's a good reminder. It's a good reminder. And, and um, we, we, we've, we've seen church leadership fail time and time again, right? And oftentimes, it relates to the, the fact that people lose sight or they will allow a pastor or an elder or someone else to be put up on, on a pedestal. And I hope that I never come to a place where... Um, that uh, there, would, I, there would be a view of our church leadership or anyone that would be so lofty because I think, you know, we'll, we, we will prove ourselves fallible time and time again. We do it on a regular basis, don't we? Yeah, we, we, we let you know that, um, that, we're, that we're fallen. And this is a great reminder for us. It really is that, that spiritual pride can tempt me and tempt leaders tempt us all to exalt in self-righteousness rather than in God's righteousness. And this is what the Pharisees and other spiritual leaders of Israel were known for. Jesus warned uh, about this regularly, and we see a great picture of it in Luke 18 with the publican and the Pharisees, and he prefaces that parable by saying, or actually providing a warning about those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who viewed others with contempt. Well, later in the same week, Jesus is actually, it's not recorded here in Mark, but it's recorded in Matthew 23. Jesus is going to, the gloves are going to come off even more. And he's going to provide seven woes against these leaders in Matthew's account. But a synopsis and we don't have time to look at it now, and we're actually going to, when we study uh, passages later in Mark, we're going to come across it and look at them uh, more intently. But a synopsis of these woes warns against religious pride and self-righteousness. Christ's authority was confronting them head on. It forced them to look in the mirror of their own pseudo-righteousness while the true righteousness of Christ was staring at them right in the face. This is the first conclusion that we can draw away from this passage. Christ's authority confronts religious pride at every turn. Spurgeon said, Self-righteousness exclaims, I will not be saved in God's way. I will make a new road to heaven. I will not bow before God's grace. I will not accept the atonement which God has wrought out in the person of Jesus. I will be my own redeemer. I will enter heaven by my own strength and glorify my own merits. He goes on, The Lord is very wroth against self-righteousness. I do not know of anything against which his fury burneth more than against this, because this touches him in a very tender point. 
It insults the glory and honor of his son, Jesus Christ. End quote. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, I, I rejoice. I truly, and I don't say this because it's, um, it, it sounds good or because it's the right thing to say. I, I, I cherish being at a church where we exalt in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we're not trying to puff each other up. And that it isn't about spiritual pride and things that can take place with practices of legalism. But it's about us being spiritually bankrupt without Jesus Christ. Amen? It's about having absolute nothing without the Lord. He's all the righteousness that you will ever have. He's all the righteousness that I will ever have. Pastor or father or husband, whatever, I, whatever role I step into. And whatever role you step into, we get that and we get to celebrate that. Actually, we get to celebrate it in a very meaningful way as we celebrate communion, second hour, which we'll have the opportunity. And we celebrate the fact that his imputed righteousness is credited to our account. That's the joy of celebrating communion. It's the joy of also having the opportunity, which we'll have this morning, to come and confess our spiritual pride. And, and the ways that we can be proud at heart. The ways that, that, we, that we can look out, even within the church, and, and be judgmental or be critical. To, to look at the ministry of roots and say, well, I don't under, well, well, I wish they did things this way, or why don't they do that, right? We can, that, can, that can surface. Or maybe it's rock ministry. You look over at rock ministry, and why don't we do this, or why don't we do that, right? There's pride that can surface. And yes, we do want to improve ministries, but we want to do that with an attitude of humility. And that allows us to maintain unity with Christ and with each other. Well, this leads us to the second conclusion that we can draw from our text that comes in verses 29 through 32. Christ's authority exposes rejection of truth. Jesus turns the table and he asks them a question. And this might seem like Jesus is being a little evasive here, but rest assured he's not. Counter-questioning was a very common way to respond amongst rabbis. He's not evading their question, but he's actually pointing the inquiry in the right direction. Look again at verse 29. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. One question here in, in the Greek, it's translated one question, it literally is one word. And, and the, the, the point is that it's one thing, it's a preliminary matter that's being emphasized here. It's not meant to be contrasted with the two questions that were asked by them, but it points to the one simple matter that will give them the true answer. Jesus knows the deceptive nature of their hearts and that they're rejecting the truth, so he's going to use John the Baptist as his example. Verse 30, Jesus asks, Was the baptism of John from heaven... Or from men? Answer me. Remarkably, everything that needs to be known about Jesus can be summed up in one word or precisely one event the baptism of John. Jesus asked, Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? 
And he does something here that's so humble, because the, the, the Lord is the Lord, but he, out of reverence for God, it was very common amongst the Jews not to use the name of God. And so here, rather than mentioning God, Jesus mentions heaven. But for the sake of interpretation and understanding, the question could be understood as, was the baptism of John from God or from men? The category that Jesus selects to prove his point is very interesting. Why do you think he chose the baptism of John? Just at the surface. I'm going to tell you. We're going to study it together. But I'm just saying, you think of all the examples that he could have shared. Why John the Baptist? James Edwards writes, Jesus does not appeal to the great rabbinic schools of Hillel or Shammai or even the Torah or the temple. The categories necessary to comprehend Jesus and his mission surpass these. Nothing shy of heaven and man, God and humanity, will suffice to answer the Sanhedrin. What Jesus now asks of them cannot be answered from their power base in the Torah, the temple, or Roman authority. Thus, the question of Jesus implies that he stands not under the Sanhedrin, but over it. His counter-question is evidence of the very authority about which he is questioned, end quote. Hopefully you're able to track with that. He's, he's, he's calling them out. His authority is going to expose the rejection of the truth. And it's at this point, you might be asking, well, which truth are we talking about here? It's a fair question. And to understand, we need to, we need to know what the primary purpose of John's baptism was. This will help us. The truth is that if you reject John the Baptist's ministry and mission and its connection to Christ, then you won't understand and accept Christ's mission either. So let's figure this out. Or Actually, there's a, a great passage in John chapter 1. The Apostle John writes it, not John the Baptist. But I want to invite you to turn to John 1. And we're going to go through John's prologue. And for the sake of time, I'll add commentary as we go, and we're going to bypass a few verses, but I want us to get the main point. And let's start in verse 6. Verse 6 in the New American Standard says this, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Okay, stop here for a moment. I want you to notice the, that all might believe through him. Little h right there. Not a reference to Christ, a reference to John the Baptist. The primary purpose of John's ministry as a forerunner was for God's people to recognize the Messiah and to believe. Okay, verse 8. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now we're going to see in verses 9 through 18 and I'm not going to read them. They're going to go on and they're going to describe who? Jesus Christ, right? The light. Very clearly. But I want to draw our attention to verse 11. It says, He, referring to Jesus, came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. His own is a, a reference to the nation of Israel. And we're a well-taught bunch. 
And so we understand that his own did not receive him, and it predicts the rejection of the Messiah. Most notably, we, in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, verses 27 through 41, we, it helps us clearly. And then there's uh, passages in uh, Isaiah 2 that also predict the rejection. But how did the rejection play out? This is where, uh, starting in verse 19, if you look down, it, it helps us. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Notice again the representation from the Sanhedrin. And and verse 24 lets us know that it included the Pharisees as well. And they show up to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as, the Isaiah, as Isaiah the prophet said. So we see this. It's foundational, but we can lose sight of it. The purpose of John's baptism, there's actually a dual purpose. First, it pointed Israel to the Messiah. Second, it appointed them to repentance in preparation for the Messiah's arrival. And both were rejected by the leaders of Israel. And the evidence of this is seen in the response now here in Mark eleven thirty-one and 32 of our passage today. Look at verse 31. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Because he was, right? Because he was. And they they refused to recognize this. And it's an interesting word here. Um, the Greek word in verse 31, translated disgust or reasoning, appears seven times in Mark. And it's always in the context of people trying to evade the force of Christ's word or claim on them. Jesus' question reduces them to a calculated dilemma. And it's unbelievable just how precise our Lord was. They either have a decision, a decision for John, which will appear to support the cause of Jesus, whereas a decision against John will alienate the crowds for whom John was correctly regarded as a prophet. Anyone play chess? Just curious. Any? I got a chance to, I hadn't played chess in a long time. I played it uh, one of the games on my flight coming back from Malaysia, and I realized how bad I'm at it. But there's, a, the, the, there's something that's happening here that's reflected in the game of chess. And you know what it is? It's checkmate. You say check when, you, when you, you, you know, you're lined up with the king and you can take the king out. right? This is checkmate. There's, there is no move here. There is no wiggle room. The Lord Jesus Christ has, has locked them in. They're, they're boxed in. And they're looking for answers that will allow them to keep running and rejecting Christ and his authority. And you look at this and you just see the deceptive nature of the the human heart, don't you? And you think, 
Man, them Pharisees. And then you meditate a little bit longer and you look at yourself and you look at your own heart and there's principles for us. There are. There's principles for us to see. How do I run? How, how do I reject his authority? What part of my life do I not allow him to govern? Do I have freedom to um, watch whatever movies I want, go on the internet wherever I want, be friends with whoever I want, to date whoever I want? Do I have that? Or does his governing authority come in? Does it provide direction? Does it expose any rejection of truth in my heart? That's, that's the principle. That's the takeaway for us. It doesn't take long. They refuse the testimony of Christ's baptism by John and we know in other gospel accounts that God spoke during that time. That's what's featured. That the, 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 the Spirit descended upon him like a dove and God himself, the Father, recognized his Son. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? That can't be lost, right? They're aware that that occurred. And then the other purpose was to make straight the way of the, roar, the Lord to prepare to repent of sin. But when you're self-righteous, why do you need John's baptism? <laughs> what do you have really to repent of? They were so consumed in self-righteousness that it, they just disregarded the purpose of John's ministry. They refused their need for repentance and continued to bathe in their self-righteousness. Well, maybe this describes someone here today. Are you running from Christ? Are you living in rejection of the gospel? Are you rejecting his authority? Surely in a crowd this size, there is someone who is yet to trust completely in Christ for salvation. Is that person you? Is that you? Have you repented of your pride and self-righteousness and trusted completely in Christ alone for salvation? Have you confessed that you're a sinner through and through and that you stand condemned before a holy God? And that just like everybody on this earth, that you're worthy of hell and hell alone unless God intervenes. And that God brought you here as a measure of his grace to help you see your need to turn and trust in him. Don't think that you can somehow make yourself good enough to earn your salvation. And also don't think that you're vile and that your past sins proved to be too much for God to forgive. Because a lot of people do that as well. 
Whatever the case may be, God knows every detail of your past and present. He knows every single sin that you've committed, whether it's been in your private sin closet or whether that's been out open in public for others to see. He is willing to forgive you if you are willing to repent and trust completely in his Son. Turn from self. Turn from sin. Turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't reject the truth. Don't disregard your need for the gospel any further. As D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. It's true. Let today be the day of your salvation. Commit your life to Christ and follow him all the days ahead. All the days ahead. Well, there are three conclusions that we can draw from this passage. We've seen the first and the second. Christ's authority confronts religious pride. Christ's authority exposes rejection of the truth. And the third and final conclusion drawn is this. Christ's authority humbles those who reject it. Just a few words on the scribes and the Pharisees, even the high priests, the religious establishment represented by the Sanhedrin was the, the highest form of counsel. I mentioned that before. People engaged and interacted with rabbis all the time, asking them questions and questions and questions, right? Repeatedly, they had different questions. And they always had answers. They always had a scripture to quote. They always had another rabbi to quote. They always had something to say. But here we're going to see something very different. The chief priests and elders dared not answer our Lord's question about John's baptism. They dared not say it was of men because they feared the people. They dared not confess that it was of heaven because they knew our Lord would say, why did you not believe him? He testified plainly of me. What then did they do? Look at verse 31. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is a direct lie. This is a direct lie. They said, we don't know. And it's a disgraceful answer whereby the members of the Sanhedrin, this alone would discount them and disqualify them for them being the judges on Christ's authority. He had effectively effectively caught them in their hypocrisy. And the whole story is a vivid example of what happens to men who will not face the truth. It was Blaise Pascal who said, Quote, truly it is evil to be full of faults, but it is still a greater evil to be full of them and to be unwilling to recognize them. In the end, those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. Christ's authority humbles everyone who rejects it. And their blatant lie was so vile that our Lord refused to answer their question and concludes by saying, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's sad. It really is. There's a, there's a, a depressing element uh, that, that 
when we come to the conclusion of our study of this passage. And it's not over yet, and we're going to have an opportunity to see what Christ shares next with them next Sunday. But to conclude our time, I thought it was fitting to be reminded in light of second hour and our involvement in ministry overseas. I wanted to share the final words that Christ shared to his disciples in the Great Commission. Common, common passage of Scripture. But do you recall the first words that he shared with them? Remember? It's powerful. It's exousia. That's what he shares. All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And as believers, we're now ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. We now have the distinct privilege of being representatives of his authority in our lives. And his authority in, in this world. We represent his authority in the gospel preaching, disciple making ministry that we have been commissioned to. In John Stott, in his book, The Great Commission One Race, One Gospel, One Task, shares this insight The fundamental basis of all Christian ministry is the universal authority of Jesus Christ in heaven and, in, and on earth. If the authority of Jesus were circumscribed on earth, if he were but one of many religious teachers, one of many Jewish prophets, one of many divine incarnations, we would have no mandate to present him to the nations as the Lord and Savior of the world. If the authority of Jesus were limited in heaven, if he, was not, if he has not decisively overthrown the principalities and powers, we might still proclaim him to the nations, but we would never be able to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. Only because all authority on earth belongs to Christ, dare we go to all nations. And only because all authority in heaven as well is his, have we any hope of success. End quote. Christ's authority is always going to be offensive to the unbelieving world. We get that. We understand that. On our Malaysia trip, we were at the airport. We were interacting with somebody when we were sitting, waiting uh, during our six-hour layover in Hong, uh, in Hong Kong. And there was an opportunity to, uh, that our team had to witness to someone and uh, immediately when he found out that we were Americans, there was good interaction that took place. But you know when it all changed? You know when it all took a turn? When that name, Jesus Christ, was mentioned. And do you know anything about Jesus Christ? Oh, was there a recoil? There's a big story behind it, and you can ask me later because we're out of time. But there was a fence. And... 
like the unbelieving leaders of Israel who stood opposed to Christ, who basically said, who do you think you are? Jesus was prepared and willing to face those who stood opposed to him and his authority. And the same question might be posed to us when we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. When we call family members and friends and co-workers that they need to turn from their sin, that they need to repent, that they need Christ, right? It's possible that we might face that same question. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And that's when we say, I know who I am. I'm a desperate, wicked sinner, and I'm vile, and I am nothing without the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you'll see it too. I hope you'll see it too, my friend. You need him. May our hearts be reminded of the passage in Mark eleven twenty seven through 33 and the three conclusions that we have reached so that we'll stand firm, so that we'll stand firm just as our Savior did. All right, let's pray together. Father, we bow our heads rejoicing in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're humbled by it. We're challenged by it. Your word has done a work today. We thank you for that. We ask, Father, that you would continue to allow us as your servants, as your slaves, as your subjects, that we would honor you with our lives by how we put your authority on display. And Lord, we're living in a climate today where even lordship and the authority of Christ is minimized. The gospel's compromised. You can preach the indicatives, but you can't preach the commands of Scripture without offense. And there's so many things that that are, are truly threatened by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that our own hearts would not be one of them. That we would actually continue to welcome his authority into our lives that we could find freedom, that we could find joy, that we could find fulfillment in allowing his exousia his authority to dominate our lives in such a way that we can continue to be faithful to the very end in fulfilling your will. I pray, Father, for every heart that can hear my voice, that we will consider and that the one word that we will carry away from this sermon and that we will keep with us all week is authority and that we will celebrate it and we will consider just even how focusing on that one simple word the authority which belongs to Christ, how that can have a tremendous impact in how we live and what we do, even this week. What a blessing. Father, we thank you again for our church family. We ask that you would allow our hearts to be completely prepared to receive communion second hour. And we thank you for the reality that your authority has overcome everything in this world. We thank you in the matchless name of your Son, in whom we pray. Amen.